Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's discussion program. The discussion program brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national and international levels. Uh, hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guests today are Acheng Akena, Executive Director of International Refugee Rights Initiative in Kampala, and Dismos Nkunda, Co-Founder and CEO of Atrocities Watch Africa, also based in Kampala. Acheng, there's this report which came out just recently about how refugees and civilians were treated during the war in Tigray. Can you just give us a brief insight into what the report is saying? Thank you so much, Desmond. Um, the report is a civil society perspective to the uh, cessations of hostilities agreement between the federal government of Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. You may know, Desmond, the agreement brought to an end the two-year bloody civil war that cost hundreds and thousands of civilian lives and led to widespread violations and a blockade around humanitarian assistance, leading to severe consequences for the people in the Tigray region. For us, the civil society organizations involved in the production of this report, it was important for us to keep a watchdog eye or a watching brief over the implementation of this agreement and basically look at the agreement from the perspective of peoples rather than the political assessment of the agreement. I think the biggest challenge is that there's a perception that the conflict in Ethiopia is over. However, in our perspective, there are certain uh, key fundamentals that are lacking in the implementation of that agreement that could lead not only to a reinstigation of conflict, but also to conflict in other regions of the country, which is bubbling. Uh, this must, uh, Acheng doesn't want to talk about the political aspects of the, uh, the conflict, but the question is, why would a state government in, in Ethiopia is fully armed and attack the national army. Surely the, the national army will have to defend itself. That's how the whole problem started, isn't it? Desmond, the conflict in Ethiopia and in particular in Tigray is very yes. complex. Yes. Complex because the origin of this conflict, uh, if I may want to say, is that there was one region, uh, Tigray, they fought a war against Mengistu. They won. They formed the, the TPLF, uh, which became then a national party but with roots into a particular region. So in other words, it's like saying that, you know, Afar forms a, a national government and it ignores the rest of the parts of the country. So yes. what happened is that when Meles Zenawi came yes. to power as the leader of the TPLF, his understanding was that he made TPLF a national political party. Now, when he died and the Desalanya became the prime minister, he attempted, he actually was the first one to attempt to unify and make sure that the Ethiopia they get a party that is more inclusive, that includes the other regions of the country. Because he could not be able to achieve that, Desilanya resigned, and then Abe took over. So when Abe took over, his immediate thing was to dismantle the parameters of the TPLF, which had both the political, economic, security, military strength in the body politic of Ethiopia. So it was that clash. So when TPLF withdrew, they went to Mekele and said, this man is joking, we are going to fight back. He can't be able to take our privileges, our businesses, our military might, 
the best generals were all from Tigray. The best intelligence chiefs were from Tigray. So it's that clash of making sure that you want to reunify the country and make it much more unitary. And one group of people thinking that Tigrayans, it's not a justification for the war or even the violations that have happened, but that is just the gist of what exactly happened. And that's the point, but the TPLF was in power for 27 years. Is it 20, 27 years long enough for, for them to have been in power? Why do they want to uh, maintain control of, of the country using sectional interests? Actually? I'm not sure that it is about sectional interests. I think there has been a disaggregation of the country. We, we have seen a lot of unhappiness from Ethiopian people that has been very carefully controlled, very carefully managed, and to a lot of extent suppressed, particularly during the presidency of the late Meles. I think one indication probably is the number of Ethiopians that are out of the country in the diaspora. And you can see them online. For me, it is not really about sectional interest. It's about a lack of proper government systems within the country that has led to this fallout. And if those issues are not adequately addressed, we will by necessity have fallouts in the other regions. I think if it was just a Tigrayan problem, we wouldn't be seeing the tensions in Oromia, we wouldn't be seeing the tensions in Amhara, we wouldn't be seeing the tensions in Somalia. And beyond the ethnic or regional uh, tensions, we also know that there are religious tensions that have also been suppressed for very many years. And I think what we are seeing is the consequence of lack of governance, lack of equitable distribution, a lack of systems uh, that allow the citizens to feel like they are all benefiting equally uh, from the national cake, for lack of a better word. Yes, uh, this must, but in all this, the AU has a central role to play. Why has the AU been so weak in stopping conflict in Africa, not just in the Tigray and Ethiopia, in Sudan and everywhere on the continent? Interestingly, that's a very good question, Desmond, because Acheng will tell you that we have been grappling with the idea that the African Union has not been able to deploy its resources, which it has at its disposal, to be able to manage conflicts. Now, the one in Ethiopia is a very good yes. example. It's a very good example because um, given the proximity, the Africa Union Commission is based in Addis Ababa. The, exactly. All the technocrats of the Africa Union are based in Addis Ababa. Like a Cheng said, better word to use. What the heck were they doing for them not to intervene as expected? A Cheng and I have had times that we have actually met some of the bureaucrats of the Africa Commission and we have put this question. Particularly, Cheng is very strong on that. Actually, should have asked the question to a Cheng because she's very, very passionate about the lack of implementation by the African Union to stem the violence in Tigray and why they sat on their rails instead of uh, moving from Addis Ababa to Mekere. In fact, Achim, before you come in, I'd like to make this point. The AU has this peace fund, which was set up uh, 20 years ago. And I think by the end of this year, with interest in everything and contribution, it should be about $400 million. But nothing has been done to use that money to bring about peace and security on the continent. What is wrong with the AU? I wish I could answer the question about what is wrong with the AU, but all I can do is complain. Particularly because for me, the African Union was built or was established specifically to deal with the kinds of situations that we're seeing in Ethiopia and in Sudan right now. It's a multi-million dollar institutional infrastructure. The African peace and security architecture by itself 
was established as a comprehensive response to peace and security challenges across the continent, from having preventative diplomacy, political uh, direction, military intervention, and as well as a fund. So yeah. there's financing, there's political direction, there is uh, preventative diplomacy, there is uh, military uh, might. And yet with all that, all the training, all the millions of dollars that have been sank into establishing this infrastructure, the AUC still seems to be twiddling its thumbs when it comes to conflict on the continent and seems to be unable to provide the kind of responses that are required to save lives and to protect African peoples. Uh, why is this? I can only venture a guess. Um, I think there's a combination of a lack of, well, first, let me say that the AU is legendary for reinventing the wheel every time a conflict comes out. It develops a whole new set of mechanisms to deal with each conflict rather than build on the existing mechanisms and utilize um, uh, those other than the, the political component, which is the peace and security architecture. They're always appointing new envoys, new peacemakers, new mediators. And so there's the, the lack of continuity when it comes to the expertise and the lessons learned that can be applied to the next situation. Secondly, I think that there's a lack of capability amongst the political actors, which is surprising. I think we lack the kind of leadership uh, that brought into being the reiteration of the OAU into the AU. Leaders who had the courage, uh, the fortitude, the acumen, the, I suppose, wisdom yes. <laughs> and yes. ability to negotiate leaders out of power, to respond uh, in a very strong way so that they're listened to and so forth and so on. So what is happening now is Ethiopia has the upper hand because it is able to intimidate most of the actors who want to act on the situation and they're backing off and this must the irony of it all is that uh, these six african leaders went to ukraine and russia to end their conflict and they, they don't have an idea of how to solve the conflict in africa <laughs> what do you think of that mission to ukraine and russia <laughs> it's very ironical that you can leave your house burning and you travel all the way to Russia to go and put out a fire that you have no idea how it started. But I think that um, for purposes of uh, uh, African leaders going to, uh, into Ukraine and both Russia to speak to Putin, I think it's a new idea of uh, how a certain group of leaders on the African continent, particularly President Ramaphosa and President Paul Kagame of Rwanda, I think also their kind of posturing about Africa having a role to play in international politics. But you can't play that international politics of going to put off a war that uh, Ukraine and Russia without knowing or even having a clue on how we are going to deal with the situation in Sudan, which has really displaced millions of people, has led to yes. death of you know, thousands of people, is still happening now. Even now, and the African Union doesn't respond. Why did we end up having a discussion about Sudan in Jeddah? Exactly. By United Arab Emirates and, and exactly. the United States. And now it has failed. They have backtracked now. They are coming back to Ruto, to IGAD. So there is a, really a bit of a quagmire in terms of the kind of responses that the African leaders, they posture, but they don't do exactly what they are supposed to do. Because yes. if there was any country that people had predicted, 
that anything was going to happen. It was Sudan. And Sudan is here. It, it yes. has borders with seven other African countries. Mm -hmm. And thousands of people are being forced to get out of the country, refugees. We had a meeting here. Uh, actually, that's the reason we are here, Desmond. Uh, yes. Cheng and I and the African Leadership Center were hosting a meeting with the Sudanese human rights defenders. You should yes. have sat in the room and listened to the kind of things that they have gone through. And it started on April 15th. Today, I think, isn't it 19th of April? Mm -hmm. No, 19th of July. How many months are those? So the point is, the African leaders, I think they make their choices. They make them upside down. And I think that's something that should hurt and hurt Africans that we can't be able to respond and solve our problems when we have the necessary tools. Now that's good because Acheng, again, as I say, African leaders, like you pointed out and this one has pointed out, they don't even have a clue of what's going on in the continent, why conflict is happening in the continent. They've gone to uh, Ukraine and Russia to stop the war, which has been fought over Ukraine joining NATO. But they've forgotten that it was NATO that went into Libya, destroyed Libya, which has now caused a problem from North Africa to the Sahel. They should be blaming NATO for that problem rather than going to solve a problem that was caused by NATO in the first place in Ukraine and Russia. Shouldn't that be the case? But they just don't get, seem to understand these issues. I think they understand perfectly. I've been following the African Union for a very long time. And the documents that go into a summit are very well researched and have elaborate information about country situations. Even before the conflict broke out, Sudan, Ethiopia, all these were on the agenda of the Peace and Security Council. These are situations that they have discussed at length and they understand uh, the dynamics. I think it really is just a lack of a visionary leader to be able to do something about it. And coupled with the fact that many of them are facing these kinds of conflicts within uh, their own countries. The mm -hmm. current chair of the African Union is from Comoros. And yet yes. Comoros is a country that still has conflict and is still being discussed at the Peace and Security Council level as a, a peace and security situation. So what would the president of Comoros be able to do for another country when he's facing challenges uh, within his own home space? And I think that's part of the problem that these presidents are facing uh, governance, peace and security, financial challenges within their own countries, and maybe just don't have time to put their good offices into solving conflicts in other countries, either that or they don't want to condemn other countries uh, because it will, you know, it will basically shame them about their own country situation. But in terms of knowing, yes, they know. I know, because uh, this month, I mean, you've been in this business for a long time. What's your take also on the uh, the way African ladies just ignore things, more or less, or, or conveniently forget what it's all about? I mean, now uh, Ramaphosa is fighting to get Putin to attend the, uh, the BRICS conference in uh, South Africa. Is that really what matters now for Africa? Like I say, they, and I agree with that, Cheng, uh, these leaders, they understand. If you, you listen to President Ramaphosa speak at the recent Paris summit, or even if you listen to President Paul Kagame and others speak, you would understand that these are people actually who have a grasp of what, exactly what is happening. But also they have their own challenge of saying that uh, there are multiple problems to deal with on the African continent. You know the, the challenge that the African Union has had, the African Union has had with the International Criminal Court. 
in particular in the case of Kenya, the relationship hasn't been that good in terms of how the African Union, because they thought that they are being targeted unfairly, which is uh, nonsense because they are the ones who are committing the crimes. So the point is by inviting Putin, it's just trying to backstab the International Criminal Court and say that mm. you do. Uh, and it's not the first time that South Africa has done it. South Africa yes. has invited General Omar Bashir to come yes. to South Africa um, if it wasn't for the public vigilance of South Africans uh, who issued, went to court and got a court order for arrest um, and he was whisked out of the country. They, yes. At that point, have even been flown uh, directly to the head. So there is that history. So part of it, if you listen to Julius Malema, Julius Malema is saying we will escort Putin from the airport up to the meeting and take him back up to the airport. It is that the, the clash of interest in terms of uh, uh, the international justice system and the manner in which it's viewed. So I don't think that uh, Ramaphosa doing that is trying to show that South Africa cares so much about what happens in Ukraine and Russia. I think if you saw the humiliation that his delegation got in Poland, it just tells you that uh, there are certain issues we deal with at international level which are not necessarily our African things. We have things that we can do in Africa. Yes, actually, most Africans will say that the Soviet Union supported Africa's struggle for independence, the anti-apartheid movement, but now this is Russia. It's different from the Soviet Union. And of course, Ukraine was also part of the Soviet Union. So Ukraine and Russia under the Soviet Union played that role. So how can they now start taking sides? I'm not convinced that it is something that has to do with taking sides. I think that for the most part, this was a, a grandstand, a big political statement. It was a, we'll show you to the international community that Africa can also do things. For my sense in recent engagements with the African Union is that they're desperately looking for success stories because they have been over-condemned for their lack of action, for their lack of effectiveness in preventing conflict on the continent. And this was a statement to show their prowess that I think backfired quite badly. And I think that question of Agenda 2063 talks about Africa's uh, emergence as a critical player in the international arena. And Africa has always tried to present themselves as a powerful block within uh, international politics. However, I think that their own failings make a mockery of any successes that they could have in the international arena. And you rightly point out, I am not convinced that uh, the USSR was there for, or the Soviet Union was there because they necessarily loved Africa. We were just a pawn in a bigger oh, yeah. national political game yes. between, you know, in Cold War um, that, of course, affected Africa's history. And I think that if there was some deeper reflection on the role that not just colonialism, but also the Cold War played in terms of the economic and political structures on the continent, how our politics have evolved because, say, for example, they killed Lumumba in DRC because he was leaning too much in, in one way, and they did that in many other countries when a leader would be leaning too much towards socialist thinking. And what difference could have been on the continent if we had not been upon in the Cold War? Then I think their responses would be quite different in terms of 
their intervention in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. This must, but I mean, in this day and age, global power comes from economic wealth. Africa has the natural and human resources to become very powerful, but uh, it's not happening. I mean, countries like uh, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, the Saudis can do whatever they like. No one's going to complain because of their wealth. That's what Africans need to do to ensure that the people are looked after, that they have a better standard of living, and they have economic wealth and power. That should be the case, shouldn't it? My brother, look, I'm going to use two extreme examples. No, three, actually. The current fighting in Sudan, we are told, and Cheng was in that meeting, is Mm -hmm. not over positions of power. It's about water. Sudan is currently the only country that is going to have water, and the current water that it has is enough to be able to manage the African continent for almost 50 years. That's one. The second point is what you alluded to, to NATO. Do you NATO attack on Libya? At the time Libya was attacked, it had all the resources, it had the all infrastructure, it had all the means of making all Libyans be able to live in a comfortable way. So at the time of Gaddafi's death, the Libyan government had resources enough that could cater for every Libyan above the age. You know the story. I did research on that and it's it's, it's around. And UNDP was not very pleased about the kind of figures that we were pulling out as an African country. That's the second one. The third is Diara Congo. Congo can feed, can light, can educate, can build, can water every single African country. Why is it the way it is? Congo currently has 133 rebel groups. The international financial institutions cannot allow. Since what Cheng referred to, the killing of Lumumba, Belgium as a country could not be surviving if it was not for Congo. They would have been, you know, very poor, extremely very poor country. So what am I trying to say? There are many things that Africans, the wealth of Africa that we don't know. And the West is so interested in what is happening on the African continent. China has invaded the African continent because they know we have the resources, we have the minerals, we have the land, we have the water, we have everything. I can give you another example, Uganda. Right now in Uganda, sand from Lake Victoria flies out of the country every day to China for making glass, glass for cars, glasses for what? It has caused an environmental problem that roads now, the sea has invaded the villages, but no one speaks about that. But that's a very serious matter that we should be talking about. So there are many things, Desmond, that we can be able to speak about, but the manner in which we deal with the corporate international mechanisms that is happening and they want to make Africa their pawn in their international games is something that if we as Africans and African leaders don't look at it very critically, we will sink. Exactly, Achim, because I mean, we have to face it, whether you like it or not, this is the world of survival of the fittest. Even Western countries have their problems. They're watching each other, they're backbiting against each other because that's how it is. Africans are just too weak or just too open or too trusting. And that's why we have this problem. I don't think it's a matter of trust or weakness. I think it's a matter of, I keep saying this, the quality of our leaders today. They're interested in actually leading the countries as opposed to, as we say in Kenya, having their turn to eat. And, you know, they're understanding of uh, politics, but also the social contract and their obligation to Africans is very lacking. 
or maybe let me say rather than their understanding, let me say their commitment to the social contract is very lacking. We've seen very much of leaders who are in there for their own profit. They're bleeding their own countries dry and depositing that money in the same Europe that they then turn around and claim that are being neocolonialists. They have properties around Europe and in the US, in the global north, that have been bought with our taxpayers' money. And while I'm all for reparations for the crimes that have been committed in Africa, all this so-called development aid doesn't even reach where it's supposed to be. Many of our countries remain underdeveloped. Many of our people uh, remain living in poverty, particularly post-COVID. Africans are struggling and Africans are suffering. And yet we have more than, I think it's now 75 treaties which have been signed up uh, by the African Union that are speaking precisely to addressing the challenges that Africa's people are facing. From maritime security to sanitary issues, all these treaties are about making the lives of Africans better. And yet less than 10% of these treaties, agreements, decisions are being implemented. Let's take a look at the African continental free trade area. AU declared 2023 as the year for accelerating uh, the AFCFTA. However, they have not ratified the freedom of movement protocol. So is there an assumption that somehow these goods will walk themselves across borders without people? Or somehow the services will magically appear across the border without the people who provide those services? So you find that they have the legal frameworks, but the lack of implementation and the lack of recognition of the reality facing Africa's peoples makes the institutional framework a laughingstock. And if I might, Desmond, so you see those sorts of inconsistencies uh, when it comes to conflicts in Africa. All these issues, the governance deficits, the human rights abuses, they all lead to conflict. Whether you look at the conflict in Sudan or you look at the conflict in Ethiopia and what's happening in the country now, the governance deficits, the human rights abuses, all these issues add up. They're why the Constitutive Act gave greater credence to issues of governance and human rights, because they recognize that these are the source of the conflicts that we have on the continent. Now, an inability to address these outstanding underlying equity and dignity issues over several decades leads to the kinds of situations that we see in Ethiopia that now are so complicated, but they're not just difficult to unravel, but they're difficult to pull back on. You're listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. My guest today, Acheng Akena, Executive Director of International Refugee Rights Initiative in Kampala, and Dismas Nkunda, co-founder and CEO of Atrocities Watch Africa, also based in Kampala. Dismas, I mean, all what you've said, I mean, you and Akena, it's just the continent is so conflict-ridden. You guys have your hands full dealing with refugees. How is the refugee status in Africa? Because that's what you both are involved in. Achen. When it comes to refugees in Africa, uh, it's a huge problem. Africa hosts more than 26 million refugees and migrants on the continent. Contrary to popular belief, and despite the images we see on the media, most Africans migrate within the continent and they're not necessarily trying to uh, cross the Mediterranean. But the challenge that we have 
when it comes to refugees and migrants is first that we have a 50-year law. The treaty that exists at the continental level is a 50-year treaty that may not speak to the current challenges that we're facing as a continent today. People are displaced by greater things than just conflict or, or political instability. Now you have climate change, you have terrorism, the Boko Harams and the Al-Shababs are causing chaos in the lives of people. You know, you have all these environmental factors as well that are impacting on people's lives and pushing them across borders. When we had the, I think there was a time when uh, Europe was talking about the refugee crisis and leaving people to drown. Um, the refugee issue across the continent has become exacerbated by the kinds of conflicts that we are having. And the instruments to deal with it do not match the, the realities of the people who are moving across the continent. And furthermore, our governments, as I keep saying that, everybody moves. However, it is our youth that are the face of drowning people in the Mediterranean. For me, that means that the problem is not that people are moving. The problem is the lack of protection for people who are moving. Lack of protection for refugees, lack of protection for Africa's migrants. And we're not talking about small numbers. Further, you have countries putting refugees into camps along their borders, usually in places with extremely few resources and leaving people from other countries or from the continent living in abject poverty for several decades as they wait for somehow the conflict to resolve in their own country so that they can return. And yet we have a robust continental framework that recognizes the importance of being able to utilize or exchange across the continent, labor, goods, services, should in effect, allow Africans to be able not just to move, but also um, to reside and establish themselves in any other African country. So we have beyond the, you know, uh, natural resources that Dismas was talking about. We have a lot of human resources as well that are wasting yes. away in refugee camps. Dismas, then, how does all this fit into your own organization? Uh, Trusted Watch Africa. Why, why didn't you tell us a bit about it? So Atrocities Watch Africa, essentially, we formed it because I have a background. Acheng is my boss because she's now running the International Refugee Rights, which I started. So when I did my 10 years of International Refugee Rights Initiative, I didn't want to extend my term. I left. But when I left, uh, we did work with Acheng, actually. On questions of international justice, on questions of Darfur in Sudan, uh, 20 years ago, and for me to be able to set up something that watches on the particular ailment that has happened on the African continent. This is the atrocities that are happening on the African continent. So, Atrocities Watch is essentially uh, an organization I set up. And our work is to watch out and be able to see what are the fissures, what are the signs that are showing is happening in Sierra Leone, what is happening in Liberia, what's happening in Guinea-Conakry, and be able to say what exactly should we be planning. I was about to ask about early warning. I mean, but early warning doesn't work enough. Oh, what we have done is that we are now beginning that process because currently Atrocities Watch is working on countries. That is DRC. Yes. 
mm-hmm. has given us an impetus of knowing exactly you be able to map and understand and know and say, you know what, one of the biggest problems that is going to happen in the next few years coming up is going to be the fight over water, mm-hmm. over the Nile River, and in particular between Egypt and Ethiopia over the Renaissance Dam. That Renaissance mm-hmm. Dam is part of what is playing right now within Sudan, the current war in Sudan. And people have not been able to, to imagine that. But in total, thank you for asking about Atrocities Watch. Atrocities Watch is a strong partner with the, the African Leadership Center, with the International Refugee Rights Initiative, with the PALU, Pan-African Lawyers Union. And we are part of this group that is uh, you know, pushing this idea of the Africans for the Horn. You're also involved in something called Africans for the Horn. What was that about? So the Africans for the Horn, essentially it's an idea that uh, we, the four CEOs of the organizations, African Leadership, the Pan-African Lawyers Union, International Refugee Rights Initiative, and the International Atrocities Watch Africa, we decided to say, you know what, we are having disaggregated and different actions that we are doing for the Horn of Africa. And we did recognize that the Horn of Africa is actually a very practical and very violent place that if we don't manage it, then we are being exactly like our leaders. We are not a responsible conflict. And I know that the conflict within the region of the Horn of Africa is interconnected. Uh, what happens in Somalia has a ripple effect on what happens in Djibouti, what happens in Kenya, what happens in Uganda. What... So in order for us to be able to address this conflicting and resolved conflict, we wanted a platform where we can have a solidarity institution that can be able to respond and say, you know what, we will not allow this nonsense to happen. And that's precisely what we're doing. Uh, Cheng, despite all these problems, all these ups and downs, there should be hope for the continent, shouldn't there? If at least the leaders can allow young people to take charge of the destiny, because they are the ones who are going to take Africa to 2063. How does Africa get to that stage, giving young people, empowering them uh, to take charge of the continent's destiny? I think Africa's hope, yes, does lie in its people. I think that the biggest problem is that Africans think about the youth as being troublemakers, and yet young people, beyond being the future, they are there today. They face or they suffer the worst of the malfunctions in all our countries because they lack the financial, political power to be able to make a change in their own lives. And so the focus on only the youth as a problem that needs to be solved, which is the political positioning at the moment, is problematic because how do you exclude a whole generation of people and then suddenly you expect that when their so-called turn comes that they will have the tools the knowledge and the uh, fortitude to be able to take over and lead the continent to where it needs to be i think the youth need to be involved now and we're seeing increasingly that um at least political appointments are in some countries like Botswana and Rwanda, I think Namibia as well, getting to younger and younger people. And I think it's important because the world has changed significantly uh, since, you know, the people who currently have power were young people and they've lost touch with what it means to be a young person on this continent. You know, the availability of technology is an opportunity, but it is not being harnessed the youth are an opportunity, but they're not being harnessed. They are being excluded that they are for tomorrow and being handed down peanuts in terms of, you know, 
I think in, in Kenya, we have a program called Kazia Vijana as if the only youthfulness mm -hmm. for our young people is to clean the streets. Mm -hmm. Not being appointed into political office. Why aren't they being appointed into uh, key political units so that they begin the work of governance and there is a natural handover uh, of the continental agenda to younger people? That's interesting because, I mean, really in your work, the IRRI, the refugees you deal with are just young people. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you must have heard the stories. How can this problem be resolved? Because those who cross the Mediterranean are not old people, the young people. It is the young people because the young people bear the burden in many families, particularly in destitute families. The young people bear the burden of looking after their grandparents or their old parents who lack the vigor to be able to go out. And so it's the young people who are sent out yes. to go and find money for the families, uh, whether it's the Mediterranean or to the Middle East, where they face grave atrocities as well, which somehow have not received the kind of limelight that they require. Yeah, so it, it's young people who are mostly migrants. Yes. However, the issue affects everybody. Yes. Um, when a bomb falls, I don't think it decides whether yes. people are young or old. It does When uh, a military under decides to fire artillery weapons uh, upon a city. I don't think that the artillery fire chooses who's young or not, so everybody yes. ends up. But the burden, uh, when we think about conflict, I think we should look at it from a people lens in the sense that even without conflict, it is young people who bear the burden yes. of looking after their families. It's women who bear the burden of being the caregivers. And they do so in a context where their agency, their ability, competence is not recognized. And mm. so all the situations that people face on a daily basis are exacerbated tenfold in conflict. And so it's definitely uh, younger people who are bearing the brunt, but they're not the only ones. Unfortunately, Africa's crisis um, impacts all people, but in very different ways. And I, I, I know that you are both Ugandan because you stay there. But you know what happened during the last election that we had? The biggest targeted group of oppression by the government of the, the security forces of Uganda were the youth. So they arrested thousands and thousands. Why? Because majority of them were supporting Bobby Wine, whom they thought was young like them. And so the policy that is developed is simply because these youth have a different meaning of understanding of communication. Their communication is social media. It's fast, it's quick, and it, it mobilizes more people in the quickest you know, time possible. But the point is that, and also there are many, I think by statistics in Uganda, about 85% are above the age of 35. And that means that then even the political processes of the country has to change in terms of adjusting and understanding or knowing how to deal with Achenga Kenna, Executive Director of International Refugees Rights Initiative in Kampala, and Dismas and co-founder and CEO of Atrocities Watch Africa in Kampala. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio numeral number one. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info 
at africanradio.com. <laughs>